Let me give an announcement before I forget, because if I forget, it won't come up again until last minute, and then I'll be panicking. So, Tuesday, we are hosting a minister's conference. So, everyone in our association is invited, um, and we will host them here during the day, and I need help. So, if any of you are available during the day or interested in helping prepare food leading up to the event, would you meet me right after service over here to the side for a very quick meeting to help me put the logistics together for that? I really need at least four or five people, at least two or three who can be here, four or five maybe total that can help um, put together what's, we're going to feed probably 40 to 50 um, men, and uh, you know they're Baptist pastors, so... Uh, it's got to be fried, whatever we do. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so, <laughs> but there has to be dessert, otherwise they won't come. So, you know, I can put out, you know, what they're doing or what we're, what we're eating, and then the, the, the attendance will be better. So, if you would see me right after service over here, um, and let me know if you're willing and able to help. This Tuesday, it'll be from 10-ish to 1-ish, and uh, if you're available at any point during that or available to help leading up to it, I would love the help. So, let me know after service if you can do that. All right, let's dive in. We are doing a very short, very high-level overview of what book of the Bible? Is it on the screen? I don't think it is. Good. Titus, very good. So this was one of those, uh, let's do one week on membership that turned into two weeks on membership that turned into an overview of the book of Titus. So there's, there's some logic behind, or at least sequence, um, to those events. And so let's just rehash What's going on? Every, every year in February, we like to take our annual disciple-making survey. You'll note that we're not doing that this year. We're going to redesign our disciple-making strategy. Our strategy has always been gather, grow, guide. Gather represented this gathering. Grow represented small groups. And guide represented... Re representative. I said that like four times, didn't I? Represented, one, one Ed, um, represented our one-on-one -on -one disciple-making piece. We're going to revamp how we're looking at that, and the elders have gotten together. We've had some amazing discussion about what that's going to look like, and I decided to step back, slow down, and let's just readdress the question of what exactly are we doing as a church, as members of the same body? What is it that we are here for? How should we be operating? And we decided to look at Titus for one primary purpose. Paul was telling Titus what the church is ought to be doing. And so he's answering the exact same question in admittedly a different context, but most of this content will apply to us almost verbatim, identically the same. So let's just reset the context for the book of Titus. So first and foremost, Titus was written to whom? Titus. Very good. So Titus was written to Titus. It's, it's very funny. All of Paul's letters are named after where it's written to, and like everyone else's book is named after who wrote it. So it can be a little confusing sometimes, but in this case, Titus is the recipient. He's the one who got the letter from Paul, read it, and had to do what it said. So I've already said it eight times, but who wrote the letter? Paul. So you'll find it's in the Pauline section of Scripture, so from Romans to Philemon. It's the second to last book in that sequence, all from Paul. Paul is writing a letter to Titus. Now the date of the letter is a little difficult to ascertain because when we read the book of Acts, the events in this narrative never take place, which leads us to believe that this is probably a post-Acts work of Paul. So he did everything he did in Acts, and if you remember, Acts chapter 28 ends with Paul where? Remember? In prison, 
in Rome. Now, church tradition tells us that he was released from that imprisonment, did more ministry, and then ended up in Rome again less than a decade later where he was uh, martyred. He was killed, beheaded for his faith. So in that interim, he's apparently done some work in Crete. He left Crete, and he sent Titus, or he technically left Titus in Crete to finish the work he was doing. You're familiar with Crete, right? That's that little long island in the middle of the Mediterranean. He left Titus there to do some work. He gave him one general statement, appoint elders in every town. So in other words, we, if using modern lingo, we would say that his mission was to send out church planters. He's creating new churches, setting up their leaders in every town across the area of Crete. It's the work of church planting, and he's writing a letter to give them some basic criteria, some basic strategy, we could say, for what those churches need to do. So let's start with the word elder. We emphasized that last week. Elder, biblically, is the primary term for the position I am at the church. What do we usually call my position in the church, in the South especially? What do we usually call that? Pastor. All right, pastor is only used twice in Scripture for this position. It's not the default term. The default terms, actually there's two way more prevalent terms in the Scripture. One, of course, is elder. And trivia, who can give me the second one? Overseer, all right? And shepherd is just another translation of pastor. So elder, overseer, or bishop, if you've heard that term, bishop, and then pastor or shepherd. Those are three synonymous terms for the one position. So Titus was told, appoint elders in every town for them. They can oversee and shepherd these people, specifically that were fighting false doctrine. Now, do we ever have to deal with false doctrine in our context? Every single day. Um, false doctrine from within, and especially false doctrine from without. So the context technically has not changed. We might not be fighting the circumcision party, but we are fighting all sorts of false doctrine in our culture. Now we're going to survey all of chapter 2 this morning, and so as we go through this, and you think, wow, we're moving way too fast, I want to agree and disagree. Yes, we're moving way too fast. If we were studying Titus, we'd do like, in Titus, we'd do like a verse at a time. We're not technically studying Titus, though. We're studying church membership. We're studying the function, the strategy of how church should operate, and we're using Titus as our tool for instruction. So it's a little different. So if you remember the Matthew series, it was like, that felt like it took forever. And it only took like a year and a half to go through the book. And we could spend just as much time in Titus, but our goal here is different. We want a big picture overview. So there'll be sections through here. It's like, man, I wish he would talk on that more. One day we will. Titus is an excellent book. We will come back and study it. And we're still going to Malachi for those who are interested two weeks out. We'll start Malachi. We'll do several weeks in there. And then we're going to move to 2 Corinthians, which is going to be incredible. 2 Corinthians is a wonderful book. And the way we'll do Malachi and 2 Corinthians is the way you'll wish we were doing Titus. I understand that. But we're going to move quickly so we can put it all together. Also, I'm going to change the order of the passage this morning. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Paul gives his what and then his why. We're going to reverse it, and we're going to do the why and then the what. Can you all work with that? Is that fair? All right, it, we could do it either way, but for me, I just wanted to do the why first. So we're going to do all of Titus 2. We're going to pick up in verse 11, go to the end, and then we're going to start over at verse 1 and work our way to verse 10. Make sense? Everybody on the same page. All right, here we go. 
Let's dive in. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Now that's a very precise reference. Those words can seem very vague. The grace of God can mean so many different things. But when he says the grace of God has appeared, we're talking about a singular event in world history. And what is this? This is Jesus. This is the incarnation of God himself. Came to earth. We beheld his glory full of grace. We have seen the grace of God literally manifest itself in the world through the presence and work, ultimately the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ himself. God's grace has truly appeared. We say God has demonstrated his love for us in that he did what? He sent his son. That is the manifest grace of God. It has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now we know when it says all people here, we don't mean all people believe it, but it's for all people. What should we be doing with this grace that has appeared? We should be sharing it with all people. It has direction, it has purpose, but what's it doing to us? Verse 12, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Another way we could say this, just a simple short phrase, it teaches us to What did Jesus say when he was preaching the kingdom of heaven? Repent. Turn from the domain of darkness, Paul would say, to the kingdom of Christ. To turn away from the world to the things of God. From earthly to heavenly. From flesh to spirit. We are transitioning from one to the other. And it's not just a single action. It says we're training. We're being trained through this work of the gospel to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled. All of this is the work of the gospel, the work of the grace of God. It's doing this in us, to live upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, that's very formal lingo for Paul. So if you've been following along with us for some time, you'll know how Paul's using some of this terminology. When we say present age, that's in contrast to what age? The age to come, give me some other lingo for that. Kingdom of, in its fullness, the kingdom of heaven is the age to come. The one we probably used most frequently growing up in the church is, you know, in heaven, or what we really mean is in eternity. In fact, when we say the word, word eternal life, we're referring to the age to come specifically. So Paul's saying we need to do all of this in which of the ages? One day in heaven or right now, right? That's the mission. We have a tendency, don't we, to to put things off. Well, that'll be fine in heaven. And if we have a mentality of heaven as, well, since that's coming, I don't have to work as hard now. That's not Paul's worldview. That's not what he's teaching us. Instead, the gospel is transforming us in the here and now, in the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's reminding us we're in the present age, but the present age has an end point. We're waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into the eschatological debate in that verse. If you're familiar with that study, you'll recognize that there's a lot of opinions around that one verse, but we can all see the main idea is clear no matter how we look at it. What's going to happen that ends this present age? Jesus comes back. His glory is manifest, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will rejoice, others will confess in sorrow, but the glory of God will be here. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness, from, law, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see the end goal that God has. He wants a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, when are they zealous for good works? In the age to come or in the present age? This is the present age. He's pulling out and redeeming a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, that should call you back to the opening last week. You should go back and read it one more time. Titus chapter 1. Let's start at the very beginning. See what Paul said. So Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. What did God promise before the ages began? That he would purify himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And to recall it, if you remember, we asked the question, well, who, before the ages began, before there is creation, who did God make a promise to? Himself. Intertrinitarian promise. We call that the covenant of redemption. This was always God's plan to make this people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that is the first line in your outline if you want to write that. We are taking that directly from Paul's wording. The gospel has made us a people for God's own possession who are zealous for good works. So let's just focus on that word zealous for just a moment. When we say zealous, would you describe that as you know, just kind of a haphazard, living life, doing good. If, it, if I have an opportunity, I'll do something good. I'll, I'll contribute to the kingdom if, you know, the right scenario shows up. Or, you know, if God really does a finger writing on the wall sort of thing, then, then I'll, I'll do some good things. Or does that word describe every day, looking for every moment, I want to make purposeful decisions for the glory of God, for the proclamation of the kingdom, for my own growth, and for the good of others. Obviously, zealous refers to purpose, refers to passion, refers to desire. So, if we just define it that way, God's plan, then, is to redeem a people as his possession and to make them zealous for good works. If you look around most churches, even our own, would you say that describes the bulk of the members of the church across this country? No. Okay, so everybody's hesitant. Everybody's like, no. No, absolutely not. That's what we're thinking, is it not? Now, we've seen people zealous for good works. We know, we know who those people are, right? With, sometimes we feel bad. It's like, man, why's that person got so much gumption to do this, and I feel so lazy. So here's what I'm going to present to you. Paul isn't just giving Titus the end goal. 
this maturity in Christ. He's also giving Titus the steps for how you get there. For some of us, we recognize that salvation is not Jesus saved me and I instantly became that person. And generally speaking, when someone gets saved and instantly becomes that person, if you ask the question again six months later, are they still that person? Often not, right? It's just like youth go to youth camp. They go to youth camp, they have this experience with Jesus, they get so excited, want to charge hell with a water pistol mentality. They come back two weeks later. How would you describe those kids? Exactly like they were before, 90% of the time, right? And I say that because I went through that cycle myself over and over and over and over. You feel like your own Christian journey looks more like that? You got two weeks of, man, I'm on this. I'm living for Jesus. I'm sharing the gospel. I'm praying with my family every day. I'm making disciples. Two weeks later, oh, what happened to all of that? So Paul's giving instruction here, not just for what we attain to be, but how is it that we get there? Okay, so we're asking that question. How do we grow into maturity? That's the next question in the outline. How do we grow into maturity? I'm going to give you the simple answer, and then I'm going to defend it, okay? So here's the simple answer. How do you grow? How do we, how do I as a church member, as a, as a kingdom citizen, as a follower of Christ, how do I grow into maturity? The answer is membership. Membership in the church. Right? There's no concept in the Bible of solo Christians, of solo Christianity, of me and Jesus versus the world. That's not in there. It does not exist. In fact, almost every passage that we individualize or work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that's one of my favorite ones to, to debunk. That verse has nothing to do with you as an individual working out your own salvation. Paul's saying, guys, I'm not going to be there, so you guys as a church are going to have to do it on your own. Not individually corporately. We see this all throughout the scriptures. So let me, let me try to prove it to you, okay? So let's back to verse 1 in chapter 2. But as for you, so transition, but as, who was the group he was talking about in the previous paragraph? Do you remember? The circumcision party, the false teachers. But as for you, instead of like those guys, you do this, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Doctrine. Now, you would think, teaching what accords with sound doctrine, Paul would list out specific doctrinal components you have to believe. Now, certainly, there are doctrinal components that you have to believe. Those are all over this passage, all over Titus, but that is not how Paul explains this verse. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let's give some examples of that. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, sober dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So see how that ended and how it started. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then at the end of verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, the doctrine that Paul is talking about here is what we do. Now obviously what we do is directly connected to what we know, to what we believe. But have you ever met somebody who believed right and didn't do right? Or maybe we're just describing ourselves. We know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. Now, did you see the interweb of people? What are the older women supposed to do to the younger women? To train them, to mentor them, to train them up, to, to use another word, to disciple them. Do you think the older men are supposed to do that to the younger men? What is Titus supposed to be doing to all of them? Mentor, training them. All right, so I want to unpack four pieces. Now, Paul's got a lot to say there. We're at the whole paragraph, what slaves should do, what younger men should do, what older women should do, younger women. Oh, okay, I got mixed up. But you follow what I'm saying. All of these different groups within the church have to be playing different roles, doing different things, training in different ways. I want to just unpack that, break it down into four different pieces. All right, number one. All right, four components of growth. So in other words, let me frame this well. You need to be doing these four things. If you're doing these four things, then you are on a trajectory to verse 14, okay, which is the, a people for God's own possession, zealous for good works. If you look at yourself and say, why do I keep ending up somewhere else? All right, the answer is you're probably not doing all four of these things. Do these four things in the membership of the church and you will see growth. Number one, serving. All right, all of these people, Titus is the best example. What's Titus supposed to be doing with all of these folks? Serving with his gifts. Paul has left him in place as a teacher. He's equipping, he's teaching, he's training, he's serving. All right, what are the young women supposed to be doing specifically? Did you see what it said in there? What are they doing? They're working at home. Now, there was no concept of the Industrial Revolution and careers at home versus careers at work. That's not what Paul's talking about here because that didn't exist as a question. They all worked at home, technically, no matter what your career field was because that's where you lived, where you worked. That's not the question. Rather, the thing is laboring at home, meaning the object of your labor, the object of your focus is what? Your own family. Do that work. That's your responsibility. Serve one another. What about the older women towards the younger women? Serve them. You ever tried to train someone and instruct them? Now, we have a tendency to just want to give advice. That's not what this is talking about, though, is it? We're talking about living life together. We're talking about sacrificial serving. It's hard to be there day in and day out. It's one thing to celebrate with someone. It's another thing to weep with them. 
All of that is at play. Serving with gifts. The older men, the younger men, all of them are plugging in and working, doing something. Now, Paul doesn't go into the elaborate definitions here of spiritual gifts, but this is what we're talking about. God has made each of us unique. We have a tendency to think of gifts solely in terms of some external thing that God has deposited in me that I do, and that's certainly one way we could look at it, but it's way more holistic than that. Spiritual gifts are a component of what God has given and what God has made you to be, and you use that gift in the church and serve. All right, component number two, doctrine. Doctrine. In other words, knowing the right stuff. Paul connects doctrine to holy living in Ephesians chapter 4, that everyone has this tendency to be pushed and sway in the wind and they're blowing, they're just flowing with the stream of whatever's going on in the world unless you are anchored with proper doctrine. And Paul says that over and over and over again and again and again. Avoid the false teaching. You have to know the Scriptures. You have to know what the Bible says. It's not enough just that you serve to experience growth. You have to know what the Bible teaches. It anchors you and guides you in the right direction. So serve, learn the Scriptures, know the doctrine. Number three, mentorship. Mentorship. I think that word has already been um, said. But look at verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, what's the point of a model? It's what you look at, right? It's an example. Now, we're told throughout the Scriptures that we should imitate who? Christ. Obviously, he's the best example, but not every time Paul uses the lingo does he say Christ. Sometimes he says, imitate me. Now, is that arrogant for Paul to say that? No. What's Paul doing? Why can Paul say, imitate me? Because he's doing it right. He's imitating Christ. He's growing in spirituality. He's growing in biblical understanding. He's growing as a Christ follower in submission and suffering and growing in righteousness. They can look at him and say, yeah. That's how it's done. So this works in two ways. One, be the model. Right? Be the model that someone can see in the church. That's why part of the reason we do family worship that one Sunday a month is because we want to model as adults what that should look like. And so if we come into the church and we, we don't pay attention to the sermon, we don't worship at all, we don't participate in what's going on, we're modeling that the children. What if you say, well, my children aren't in here, but somebody else's are. In fact, there's other believers in here, and they may look at you as the more mature seasoned believer. And the way you worship, it's not just between you and God. It is between you and God, but it's not just. You're also training those who are here. You're modeling what that looks like. You're modeling all day long Every day, the second component to that is look to the guys, the women who have been doing it longer. Model them. Do what they do. This works in both directions. Maybe you're the older woman or the older man. Maybe you don't want to be called that. But let's be honest. If you've been in the faith longer than someone else, you're the older in the scenario. Be 
the model. So many young people come into the church, come into the faith, and they want to be shepherded. They want to be mentored. They want someone to show them how it's done. And we're not even talking just in spiritual ways. Some people come in and like, I want to know how to cook. Someone show me how this works. I don't understand what I'm doing. They want input. They want someone to love and care them, care for them. That's mentorship. Both sides. Number four, personal devotion. The word self-control, integrity, dignity. There's a lot of those words in this passage. You just go through the passage. How many of these words have to do with my personal character? I find that that's a, that's a long list. That's a large quantity of the overall passage. So think about how this works. You recognize better than the rest of us, hopefully, that you're a sinner. Anybody in the room just know they're a sinner, woke up this morning, knew they were a sinner? Anybody not wake up this morning and realize that? Because we need to talk afterwards, okay? All right. We all recognize that we lack in so many different areas. Now, we can respond to that in different ways. We can do like Adam and Eve did. They sinned. God walked in the garden, and what did they do? They hid. They ran. But John tells us in 1 John, this is one of my favorite responses to sin in all of Scripture. He tells us in chapter 2, 1 John 2, 1, if little children are writing these things to you in order that you might not sin. But, fully knowing that they're going to. But when you do sin, so Paul's, not Paul, John, sorry, we're changing authors here. John is giving them first step. So if I just had to quiz you right now, when you sin, first step should be blank. Most people are going to give a different answer than John gives in 1 John chapter 2. But when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is your, our big fancy P word, you know what it is? Propitiation. It's the first thing. He didn't say repent. He didn't say confess. Should you do both of those? Absolutely, in very short order. But the very first thought, forgiveness. Christ stands as your advocate ready to forgive. That takes personal devotion. You want to grow in Christ, it's got to be personal. It's got to happen within. As you behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. In 2 Corinthians, which we'll get into over the summer. So excited about that. But put all four of these together. If you are serving the body, if you are growing in your knowledge of Scripture, your understanding of doctrine, if someone is mentoring you or if you're mentoring someone else and you are growing in personal devotion, where will you be a year from now? You won't be in the same spot. You know, sanctification is a process with its ups and downs. But I'm telling you, if you make these four pieces part of your daily growth, your strategy for maturity, maturity happens. I can say this with absolute confidence. This is biblical. Paul says, grow in maturity. Here's how you do it. Older men, younger men, younger women, older women, even slaves. Do these things with one another. These interconnected relationships, all overlapping. And our modern day term for this is church membership. 
That's what we ought to be doing. So let me tell you what's coming. So this whole gather, grow, guide thing, we scratched it and started over, and we reproduced almost the same thing. But it is different and a key component, okay? So here's what's coming, and uh, we're going to revamp this. So I would say we've been strong in a lot of elements of discipleship and disciple-making at our church for seven years. But one thing that has always gone astray is the third one, guide. We gather well. We've, we've had a lot of personal growth in a lot of different ways. We've done that pretty well. And in the guide, our idea of organic, which is usually the word I use to say, we don't want to emphasize a program and you just do the program. Rather, we want you to make disciples at home to make disciples in your neighborhood, to make disciples in your school, in your own relationships. You intentionally and strategically leverage the life God gave you to make disciples. The problem is, is when we say it that way, that sounds good, and you want to do it, but then you leave here, and what do you do? <laughs> Nothing, <laughs> right? Or, or some, but it's not effective. We're going to redevelop the strategy. We've already worked through this. Gather, obviously, is biblically mandated. We have to gather as the body of Christ. But grow is no longer going to mean small groups. We're going to mean those four things that we just discussed. We're going to build a system where you plug into mentorship, to serving, to growing in biblical knowledge, and your own personal devotion to the Lord so that we can shepherd one another. We're going to lead this forward in the coming weeks. We want to help all of you, including ourselves, grow in our devotion to the Lord. Instead of guide being last, it's going to be go. All of us are called to make disciples. You remember how we ended Matthew? With that making disciples, we had two chief ways to define the go in making disciples. One modeled the Jerusalem church. What did the Jerusalem church do? It poured out its gospel work at home. It did it here, everywhere they went. As they did normal life, everything became oriented around the gospel and Christ right there in their town. And maybe that's where your journey goes, that you become part of our system. You're a mentor. Maybe you become an elder. Maybe you eventually become a leader of some sort in the church because you are plugging in here. But maybe your go looks more like the Antioch church, where God has called you to church at the square so that you could grow in your faith, so that you could be sent. Maybe we plan a church one day. Maybe we send you as a missionary. A lot of you are going to leave anyway because of the transient nature of our job market. And when we send you out, you don't just leave. We send you on mission because you've grown in maturity and you are now part of that statement. God's own possession, zealous for good works. I think God's going to do great things through this church as we humbly submit ourselves to his word and to his leading. And I encourage you to dive in. Let's do this together, and let us provoke one another, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us provoke one another to love and good deeds.